You're listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FM, LP, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. I want to read you something that has just appeared within the last few days in the Journal of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. Quote, Scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any catastrophic threat and to tell it like it is. On the basis of this obligation, we declare with more than 11,000 scientist signatories from around the world clearly and unequivocally that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency. Close quote. I wanted to read that because in, it in part explains why we're doing fire drill Fridays. I'm hoping that these actions we do every Friday will, will help normalize for people who, for whom it is not normal. Being in the streets, marching, carrying out civil disobedience and risking arrest. Because the truth is, and this is what the scientists say, scientists, they're usually neutral and nerdy, right? Scientists are saying that really the only way that we can do something about this climate emergency is to mobilize in unprecedented numbers in the streets to demand change. So that was Jane Fonda, and she is one of the coordinators of Fire Drill Friday. And Tom put together the show about Fire Drill Friday. So we'll talk about that in a second, but first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm normally here with co-host and fellow Vietnam veteran Tom Gross as the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. But we recorded this ahead of time uh, because we're isolating. We are trying to be safe. Um, So with that, Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices. For the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice, our network is comprised of over 140 chapters worldwide. Our radio show is on stations across the country. We meet the second Tuesday of the month when we meet. And we're not going to be meeting this month. We're going to be online. We're going to be virtual. So you can find our webpage, Veterans for Peace Chapter 089, and find out if you want to join us. So you can also follow us on Twitter at VFP Radio Nashville and VFP 89 Radio. You can find all of our shows by just going to bit.ly slash VFP Radio Hour. Now it's bit.ly, B-I-T, dot L-Y slash capital VFP, then lowercase radio hour. Also, if you're a station online or on the air and would like to like us to send you our show, just e- text me your email at 703-403-6135. If you have a question, send it to the same phone number, the same text number, uh, and we will try and get to your question. Okay, with that, the Veterans of Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. 
Okay, happenings. Um, we're all staying hunkered down. We think you should too. You can look for virtual activities. I've been a participant in four, uh, several interviews with our local progressive news outlet, the Tennessee Holler. And by participating, I mean, I watched. Um, also, uh, Workers' Dignity put on a great discussion about problems that workers face while living in Tennessee, while living in Nashville. And then, of course, Bernie Sanders has done uh, at least four or five virtual rallies, virtual um, discussions. He has been uh, all over the news. Uh, of course, the news isn't picking him up. Uh, Trump has promised that Corona will be finished up by Easter. And so this is an opportunity for Joe Biden, if he's the Democratic nominee, to really step up and to really show some leadership. Because Trump is clearly acting the fool. So where's Joe? Okay, so I, I was mentioning Tom put together a show concerning Fire Drill Friday. He talked to Ann Payne, Nashvillian, about her experience. So after we talked to Ann Payne, then he's going to have clips from a teach-in hosted by Jane Bonda. So here's Tom's show. I'm here with Ann Payne, uh, uh, a Nashville uh, resident for some time. Um, and she has recently uh, been involved in the fire drill Friday uh, demonstrations in Washington, D.C. Um, I thought I'd uh, introduce Ann and uh, find out uh, what her background is uh, first. Uh, Ann, why don't you tell us uh, what you were doing before you retired and uh, then maybe how you got involved in the Fire Drill Friday demonstrations? Well, sure. Um, I was a reporter at the Tennessean newspaper for a pretty good one, I might say. <laughs> well, it, it was an interesting job that I enjoyed, and I did it round the clock. It was it was not a nine to five job in the least. So I retired there in 2013. I covered a lot of different beats: the legislature, counties, metro government. And I did a lot of environmental reporting over the years. In fact, they were actually labeled me as the environmental reporter at the end. But mainly I was a general assignment. I'd run after tornadoes like, like we've just had hit Nashville and talk to folks. And But if there was an environmental issue, you were usually looking at it. I, was, I did probably 90% of the environmental stories at the paper over the, when the time I was there. So after my retirement, I've been enjoying life in a lot of ways, doing things I couldn't do when I was working around the clock for the newspaper. Yeah, funny how work interferes with your life. It does. <laughs> and, and I've taken great advantage of it because I couldn't do other things. I couldn't have, you know, take classes or have regular nightly activities because I was always working. Yeah. So now I've, I've, I've delved into music and... I'm playing a bass ukulele and a couple of bands and teaching 
ukulele as a volunteer at, at in public schools and wow. and working to get ukuleles into public schools and into Nashville Public Libraries. We've gotten about 30, 30 in the public libraries now that can be loaned out, so that's exciting. Wow, yeah. Nothing like libraries for finding out what the community wants. <laughs> libraries are the best, and I, I went over to the Bellevue Library cold and talked to the branch manager there because I heard she was young and innovative and just walked in, no appointment, and said, told her I, I thought the library needs to loan out ukuleles and I could help get them. Yeah. And she looked at me and gave the smile. She goes, ukuleles, yeah, I like that. <laughs> and she had already started the seed program, so you can yeah. check out seeds and plant things there. So. Yeah, it's amazing how many librarians they have ideas, but they're not sure how they get the resources always till someone walks in and says, hey, I have this idea. And then the library uh, was already thinking about things like that. They're just sort of waiting for the right situation. Yeah, and, and they do need help. And unfortunately, they're the friends of libraries now that, that do bring in some money for them so they can do unusual projects and activities. And they're just... The National Public Library System is such a boon for our community. Yeah, really. It's the best. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Fire Drill Friday, how you got engaged in it, and then what you decided to do. Okay, well, it's, 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 not, it's not a heroic story. It's a, I, I was, uh, I had a ticket from Southwest Airlines and I had to use it before the end of January. I didn't have any place I wanted to go, didn't have anything to do and I just, maybe on Facebook I can't remember where I saw it, I saw they were doing the Fire Drill Fridays with Jane Fonda and I said yes, I want to do that I want to go protest because one of the things I wrote about over the years was climate change and and am very aware of the the problems and and the the seriousness of it, so um, so I got in touch with Fire Drill Friday folks over over the internet and signed up to do a particular Friday when I could go up there. So, so they had a website. They had yes, and it, it was um, actually Facebook was the easiest way to get them, as I recall, and and they're very organized. They had everything lined out as to, you know, so when you should be there, what you would do. They had a workshop set up with it. They had, there was there was a lot of help in, in getting you, you know, familiarized with what yeah, you're so going to do. Yeah, so you get there and you're not going to be intimidated by what's going on. You have some groundwork ahead of you. It's not like you get there and discover, oh, there are police at the Capitol. Yes, yes, exactly. No, and you could you could choose to go up there and protest outside or go in and get arrested. So So different levels of yeah, commitment essentially. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, so what just tell us in general what happened and uh, what can people expect if they decide to go to D.C. in this kind of a movement, what happens? Well, this is this is probably 
the best best way to do it, an organized effort like this, and encountering the Capitol Hill police as opposed to the Washington, D.C. police, who I, I hear are a lot rougher than the Capitol Hill police, who basically are used to tourists and used to people from afar coming to protest and, and know how to gauge the... So group. these are federal workers? Yeah, they're federal workers, and um, actually... When a picture appeared later um, on Facebook of the arrest, oh, it was a picture I posted. Wow. And my nephew recognized one of the Capitol Hill police who was doing the arrest as someone he had gone to high school with in <laughs> Fairfax County, Virginia. And so I, he was a well-educated young man, and I suspect a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. So uh, you got there, you... Uh, decided, what did you decide you were going to do personally as part of the protest? Oh, I was already going to get arrested. I was, yeah. there, I had no doubt about that. It, yeah. That that was the best way to make a statement and just be all in on it. And I can do that because I'm retired. I don't have to worry about my resume. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm, I'm very lucky like that. Who's going to take care of the kids? Yeah, no, <laughs> right. I don't have children and and it's interesting because I know other people did have children and they said, oh, yeah, my daughter was really worried about me. And, you know, it was really wonderful because, you know, these are the children that the parents have worried about all these years. Now they're worried about their parents going off and protesting and getting arrested. Like the good old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, so you're there. Uh, at some point they tell you you have to disperse. Well, yeah, and first of all, I'll just run through a little bit of the logistics. We met in a church up there. It's a con congregational church where a lot of the protests sort of stage out of. They're very open to, to concerns that, and issues people in this country have. And so we had, it was sort of a rally, and Jane Fonda spoke. Not a long time, just, you know, sort of let us know what we were in for, and they explained to us how everything would go in terms of the arrest, even to the point of telling us when they put you, if you're going to be arrested, when they put you in handcuffs, you really want to be handcuffed in the front of you, not in, not have your hands cuffed behind you, because it's very hard to maneuver, it's hard to get in the paddy wagon, it's hard to, you can't do anything basically when your hands are behind you. If they're in front of you, you can scratch yeah, your nose. Yeah, if you trip, you're yeah. going to go down. If, yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> And they suggested just saying, you've got a bad shoulder, but I found out later they were pretty good if you just asked to be handcuffed in front. They were good about that. So then we went, we walked over to the, the mall area, and we had a big rally there, Honey in the Rock sang, and we had a lot of people from around the country who were, um, who had big names in the labor movement or... Uh, the, the, I think it's called the Poor People's March. There were a lot of well-known folks. I didn't necessarily know them, but they were, I, they had great credentials. And so they spoke, and you know, we listened and sang. And then those of us who were going to get arrested marched over to the um, Senate office building. That's where we were headed because the Senate has been the problem in getting anything through to make changes when it comes to trying to contain climate change and roll it back. 
So, you know, everybody had to go through the metal detector and everything else, and then we went in. So you're inside the building. So we're inside the building, and there's no problem about getting in. And we went in, and there's a, a big Calder sculpture in there, very unusual, in the main area. So we, we basically sat on the floor there. We had banners and proceeded to chant and sing and talk and making some ruckus and then the so the police who you know we'd walk past there was a whole phalanx of them there waiting for us and they all had on their belts these big loops of the plastic handcuffs that they were going to use it was I mean they knew what we were doing because there's no secret about it so and they had already told us what would happen. It happened just the way we were told by the people at the church. Because this is an every Friday event. Every Friday for several months. Yeah. And oh, one of the things they told us, because it was so bitterly cold, they said, be sure, they said it's going to be warmer when you go in the Senate office building, but when they start arresting people, before they come to you, be sure to put your all your warm clothing on, get it all buttoned up, because you won't have a chance to put it on later. It'll, you know, you won't be able to. You're handcuffed and you're kind of stuck. Yeah. And and a lot of us were not spring chickens. Yeah. At, I bet. At age 71, you know, I was I was probably. Well, I was I wasn't the oldest, but I was up there, and 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 I don't handle cold weather well, so so yeah. I did follow all their instructions, and so then there were about. I don't know, maybe about eight Capitol Hill police. And first of all, they sat on a bullhorn. They gave us three warnings. They said, you need to get up, you know, you need to be quiet, you need to get up, you know, and move on, you know, you're in the way. And so after three times, it, they gave us a chance to move, and we didn't. Anybody that didn't want to be arrested left and went up to the balconies above there because it's a big open area in the middle of the Senate office building. And so they came by and just asked people to get up one at a time and, and handcuffed them and took them out. And I was, I was one of the later ones, so I got to watch most of it. And they were, they were very polite. They were very professional. And they were, you know, and some were quite old and they were nice to the old folks. Yeah, so would you, was it obvious there are veterans of the Fire Drill Friday, people who've been there more than once, and other people like you, you were the new core coming in? Well, it's interesting, because you can only be arrested so many times before you have to go to jail. Oh, yeah, so yeah. they have rules. On... So so they you know how many times, and there were some people who went with us up to the point of getting arrested and then didn't for that reason, because... Your the record kind of goes away after two years and and but you I think it was you could be arrested twice but the third time you would go to jail. So, but it is a misdemeanor charge. It's right? a misdemeanor charge. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so they got us up and you know then then it was sort of like a cattle call. You know they took all our stuff and they told us not to have. They said don't take anything with you. You know or take as little as possible because it only slows down the process because they have to catalog everything you have, you know, put it in a bag, put your name on it. And our, we lost use of our phones as soon as they arrested us. They, our phone was gone. 
and that went with all our possessions right until the end and when we would get them back so they took us in a in a van in vans and there were so many of us they had to get a bus and they, yeah what kind of numbers did you witness we had there, there were about 140 people arrested okay which, which is a lot for them to arrest yeah it was the biggest fire drill friday they they had well, I guess that's the other thing. If these protests finally start getting some momentum behind them, presumably we get to a point where arrest is not an option. Right, and that's and it didn't get to that point where it wasn't. We we need more people. We more of us need to be doing it, and more often. And but yeah. it's hard because so many people they have to work. They've got yeah. families they've got to take care of. And that's another reason for the older folks. And plus, you know, our generation was sort of prone to protest anyway. Yeah, definitely. And so, uh, what is the actual charge that they charge okay, people? Okay, well, I've got my... Because you've got your thing. I've got my arrest uh, notice here. And the charge, it says, you've been arrested for the following offenses. And it's a little odd. Crowding, obstructing, or incommoding. Yeah, now that's a word that not everyone uses while they're protesting, that's no. for sure. <laughs> I didn't mean to incommode if I did. I was protesting. That essentially means you blocked something, I think. I, right? I, I did look or it up. hindered. I did it. look it up. It's all, it all seems about the same thing to me. Yeah. And Oh, and that was the other thing they told us. They said to deal with it all... All you had to have was, you had to have $50 with you, $50 cash to give them for, to be released. So That's the bail. I, I had my $50. And that also, it, by signing this, it meant I, I didn't have to go to court. I was just saying, yeah, I did it. And I did it. I mean, it was obvious we all did it on purpose. So you're pleading without a, a court uh, situation. Yeah, exactly. And if, if you could have refused to pay it and gone to jail, it would have been a lot more expensive in the end. I'm not sure how much, but you would have had court costs and other things. And so was anyone in the grouping actually going to court over it? Or not, that I, not, really. I, not that I know of. I didn't see anybody. Everybody I saw, because people... They, they processed you one at a time. They took us to this warehouse, again, very cold place, and they had all these chairs, just metal folding chairs lined up where we, they had us sit. And if you needed to, they had a portalette outside, and they would take off one side of your handcuffs and take you out and let you use the portalette and bring you back. So what uh, time frame were you talking about over the process of being released? It was I was in handcuffs about seven hours, which is you know, not not a great great thing yeah. <laughs> to be, but it was it was not not bad. And again, they were very professional and generally very nice, so it was not like we got roughed up. Yeah. So uh, what what is the current status on fire fire drill Friday? What what is the I guess the next uh, consecutive thing that uh, they will try to do. Are they going to have more protests? Are they trying to organize elsewhere besides D.C.? They are trying to get local branches going, and I haven't been involved in that. 
I, I am, I'm ready to go out and protest anytime and get arrested again if need be. Um, but we, we need more people. And one of, to me, one of the problems of doing it when it was done was it was so cold. And it was during the week so that, you know, other people who are working couldn't take part. Yeah. So I think there's more action needed. And one of the, yeah, somebody said, well, do you think it made any difference? Well, no, I didn't change anything. You know, we didn't change anything, but, but we, it's a ripple effect. I think, isn't it also a question of uh, maintaining a conversation about what is the problem and what is the solution? Yes. And if we don't have a conversation, right. how do we change anything? Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, and the, no, the Senate didn't suddenly go, oh, let's pass a climate change bill, no. you know, because these people have been sitting in our lobby for a little while. But you come out, and, and, I, and I like to tell people about it, because it's something people feel helpless about. Yeah. You know, those that know it's happening, which seems to be most people these days. And it, it's interesting. People thank me for it, and I... And, and, you know, I don't want to be thanked. I want them to go out and do something. And yeah. I think it does give them impetus to do something. Yeah. And they realize you can do things. And, you know, and I talk about, yeah, contact law lawmakers. And also just talk amongst yourselves, you know. Yeah. And, and personally take steps. Oh, one of the things I did, because I thought, okay, here I am. I'm going to fly up to D.C. to protest climate change. And, you know, airplanes are one of the polluters that are putting things into our atmosphere that, that add to our problem. So I did get um, credits, uh, carbon credits. I bought carbon credits to offset what was being added by my trip to D.C. and back. Yeah, so, uh, you know, maybe in the future uh, we'll have things like a larger protest on Earth Day or some weekend event, that might be one way to pursue the whole activity. Uh, what's your feeling in general on uh, where the planet's at from, you know, your reporting in the past, and uh, what's the likelihood of some uh, political will um, based on, you know, people actually following their constituencies' concerns? Boy, it is a tough one because you've got a lot of moneyed interests that are not on board with this because it's cheap for so many industries to pollute and you know they don't want people telling them they can't or they have to pay for their pollution, which is what's needed. Uh, and, you know, we've got all the scientific evidence we need. NASA has got fabulous information that's gathered from satellites and other technology just showing what a massive change we're seeing that's unprecedented. So I think we have a better knowledge now of what the problem is and we certainly have some solutions. We do, we do. But again the political will is still not there and I can't say that I, I see much on either side of the aisle in trying to really do something about this. Uh, sometimes I think uh, maybe there should be more of an argument on the economic basis. 
Yes. yes. Essentially, you know, because we talk about that and all these other budgetary issues that Congress deals with. What is it going to cost? Right. Well, what is it costing us to destroy the planet and make it unlivable? And, and what, what, what would the benefits be of reversing that? Because a lot of the narrative seems to be, well, we can't afford to do X, Y, or Z. Exactly, exactly. And, and so you can afford for children to have asthma and, you know, old people have to suffer with the air pollution too and everybody. And, and we haven't seen the real devastation of it. It's, you know, it's happening in the oceans. It's sort of happening where we don't realize it because we're not in touch with nature the way we used to be. Our trees, you know, what's happening to the soil, um, you know, what's happening to the microbes. Yeah, because some of these things uh, happen on a microcosm level, Yeah. but they affect a massive amount of living tissue right. because of the way things are integrated. That's right, and that's there have been a lot of books out, and you know some people know this and try to tell people, but it's it's complicated for people, and most people are just trying to get by and you know keep food on the table and yeah, that's one of the things that Fire Drill Friday does do that I thought was you know a very good thing, which is uh, teach people about the integration of climate concerns. Uh, with the way their their life interfaces these things. So some of it is if we didn't spend 700 plus billion dollars on the Department of Defense, uh, what could some of that money do? You know, there uh, you take a billion dollars and how many jobs do you create? So some of the answer I think is yeah, talking about the sheer numbers of what what people are going to face, or if they don't do anything. Exactly, which is always hard to quantify. Yeah. But there, you know, we could move to more green technology, which you know the oil industry has poo-pooed for years, and and yet it's being used more more green power is being used in some other countries, and any country that's smart is moving to that to be more self-reliant. Yeah, uh, without a doubt, I don't think the rest of the world is uh, dragging its feet because some countries literally have no other option. They're, they're going to kill people in short order if they don't do something. And, you know, we're right in the middle of a disease pandemic, which may or may not prove to be actually related to the environment we've created. Right, yeah. So, so there's Tom's interview with Ann Payne of Nashville and now of Fire Drill Fridays. Uh, so with that, let's go on to the other clip that he provided. Um, and this is uh, a teach-in that was hosted by Jane Fonda, uh, a discussion of all the issues that relate to climate change that are interconnected with climate change militarism uh, to, you know, this was before the pandemic, but to that too. So here's the teaching. Today we're going to focus on war, military, and climate change. And we have 
wonderful guests here who are going to help us understand more about this. Um, the Iraq war was largely fought for fossil fuel. It, the war destroyed a lot of Iraq's environment. It made a lot of people sick, and they are still sick. This was a war for military power and for oil. The Iraq war created ISIS, and ISIS in turn is largely funded by fossil fuel. For 40 years, U.S. wars have been mostly about oil, the climate, the environment, Millions of species and people are being killed because of oil. Most recently, Trump betrayed our Kurdish allies, leaving them vulnerable to Turkish attacks, even while he has sent our troops back into Syria to protect oil. And in case you didn't know, the Pentagon is the largest institutional user of fossil fuels in the world. 50 cents of every discretionary dollar of the federal government goes to the military. I'm curious to know what you all think of this. I think that the climate movement needs to consider itself a peace movement because to stop wars is to stop fossil fuels and to stop fossil fuels is to stop wars. You know, how about cutting our bloated military budget to fund a Green New Deal. That's where the money could come from. Phyllis Bennis, would you help us understand in more depth the connection between war, military, and destruction of the environment and climate? Thanks, Jane. Thanks for allowing me to be part of this. It's great to be back working with you again. It's been a long time, and it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. You know, you just made the great segue of the connections between war and militarism and climate. Because you can't really separate these things. War and militarism creates climate catastrophe. And climate catastrophe creates war. So if we look, you gave one of the great examples. The Pentagon is the largest institutional user of, fo of fossil fuels and producer of greenhouse gases in the whole world. More than the country of Sweden. It's crazy, right? The example on the other side, if you look at the war in Syria, one of the big reasons for the war in Syria was a major drought, a drought that lasted for three years, and 800,000 farmers were driven off their land in what had been, for a long time, the, the breadbasket of that region. Suddenly they couldn't make a living on their land, they were driven into the cities, couldn't find work, it, it erupted into problems of, of unemployment, economic inequality, sectarianism that had never really been a problem in Syria before. There were other, plenty of problems, but that wasn't one of them. And all of that was rooted in this three years of drought that were the effect of climate change. So this intersection of climate and war is right at the center of things. And of course, war and militarism in this country is nothing new, right? We know that from the origins, of this country, and we know this from the great historian Howard Zinn, who has been a teacher to so many of us, you know, when he wrote about the origins of the United States being rooted, the origins of U.S. power, economic power, military power, being rooted in genocide against the indigenous people and slavery, the two institutions that made U.S. power and, and the economic might possible. And that included the destruction of the environment, the indigenous environment that was here when colonialists arrived here. 
And manifest destiny wasn't just something that happened. It was to, to seize land. It was to get the land. And to get the land, you had to conquer the people who lived on the land, what they depended on for life, meaning killing the buffalo, destroying the environment that, that was part of that land. And they used that kind of militarism and those kinds of weapons to carry out manifest destiny. So that destruction of the land, the destruction of the buffalo, was part of that early intersection between war and climate. The, the famous, infamous, I don't even know what word to use for him, Colonel John Chivington, who was ironically a Methodist minister, who was a, a, a colonel in, in, the, uh, in the Civil War, and after the war he thought he hadn't gotten famous enough, he decided he had to go out and kill Indians. And he, got in, he ran into some problems with his own troops when they went to Sand Creek, and he commanded them to attack a peaceful village filled with women and children, and they said, wait a minute, this is a peaceful village filled with women and children. And his answers were, and I quote him here, kill and scalp all, big and little, knits make lice. It was that understanding of we have to kill everything that grows, all people that might be born, because we want this land. And he became, as a result, a great hero. And the important thing, I think, of Howard Zinn's uh, uh, understanding of that history, the history of, of slavery and genocide at the root of this country, is that Howard said, but we also have to remember that along with the legacy of slavery and genocide are the legacies of the movements against genocide and slavery that have existed from the very beginning. And that's what we stand on. It's the shoulders of those people that we stand on here today in the climate movement, the young people that are creating such enormous excitement uh, in, in the climate movement. But it means that we have to be rigorous in looking at what do these wars actually mean. So wars have incredible impact on the places where they're fought. For the US, that means everywhere else. We don't fight wars here. We fight other kinds of militarization campaigns in our own communities. But the wars that we fight with bombings and drones, we fight those somewhere else, over there. The others, they're the ones who die. And, and usually people of color. It's usually people of color. It's pretty much always people of color, with only a couple of exceptions. But one of the things that does, Jane, that's so important that you raise the intersection with racism, is that back home, we see racism and Islamophobia all on the rise to, to make sure that people will accept going to war against people of color around the world. Mm. And we see incredible environmental destruction here at home as a result of militarism. So if you look at the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the sites that were des designated as needing Superfund cleanup sites where the worst environmental destruction happened, a number of them are on and near native reservations, and 10% of them are on or near military bases. It's extraordinary. The military is creating this kind of destruction of the environment here at home. Then we look at what's, what's the war doing to the environments where it's being fought. So in Korea, the impact of nuclear weapons that were used in Korea still to this day have destroyed that country. In Vietnam, when that was the, the movement where you and I first met, the, the, the impact of Agent Orange that destroyed so much of the country the bomb craters, you remember as I do, flying into Vietnam and seeing the bomb craters that just pockmarked the entire country. And now what do we see? The, the wars that Crystal fought for and fought in and was forced to fight in, those are the wars where we see the impact of depleted uranium, 
on children and on the GIs doing the fighting and their generations to come. We see the effect of burn pits, which young soldiers uh, now talk about as the Agent Orange of the global war what, on terror. What are burn pits? Burn pits are giant pits where military forces, U.S. military forces, when they pull out, they don't want to leave behind anything that might be used by somebody else. So they burn chemicals, they burn documents, of course, but we don't care about that. But they burn toxic materials, they burn metals, they burn plastics. They burn everything that sends toxic smoke into the areas where the children who live in surrounding villages can't get away from it. And it's the Agent Orange of the new wars. So all of that is, is a crucial component of this. We see this link between the environment and war, between wars and racism, wars and Islamophobia. All of these things are, are rooted uh, together, both in terms of the economic uh, impact, the domestic impact, and the international impact. So what do we do about all that? We're, we're talking about huge problems here, but there's also models for what to do. And you started it, and that's the question of the military budget. Our military budget is so enormous. Right now, it's this year, it's $719 billion a year. That's one of those numbers that, you know, you might as well say a gazillion for all that it means mm -hmm. anything. But it's a really big it's amount of money. It's much bigger than any other It's way bigger right? than any other. It's bigger than the next seven countries together, which means Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, all the country, all the next biggest arms. Combined? Combined. Oh my God. We make, we, we, we spend more than that. 53 cents of every discretionary federal dollar of our tax money goes directly to the military. If you add in things like Homeland Security and the other militarization issues, it's more than 60 cents. It's like 62 or something. I'm not exactly sure, but it's more than 60. It's a huge proportion of our money, and it doesn't keep us safe. That's the irony of it all. So what do we have to do? We have to cut the military budget for two reasons. One is to fund the Green New Deal, to fund Medicare for All, to fund all of these things. We have to cut the military budget. Number two, we have to cut the military budget so that we stop killing people around the world. There's two reasons, and we have to do it for both of those reasons. For our own society here to rebuild, you know, what this does in terms of distorting our economy. What does it mean when 60 cents plus of your, of that your money... That leaves 40 cents for everything else exactly. that has to be done in exactly. a democracy. Oh exactly. We could cut a huge, even bigger amount. We could cut $600 billion. We would have left enough that it would be the equivalent of what Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia and North Korea, our so-called enemies, it would be the equivalent to what they all together spend on uh, on the military. What would be left if we what could be cut, left if we 600, cut billion. $600 billion. And that would pay for a big chunk of the Green New Deal. So let me just stop with one sense of something that we've all relied on for so long of things that Martin Luther King taught us. He taught us, among other things, about the intersection of racism and, and poverty and militarism. And if he were alive today, there's no question he would be talking about climate exactly there. Mm -hmm. And he said, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. And I would add, and now also approaching the physical death of the planet. That's the urgency of the fire drill. That's the urgency of now. 
Thanks. What do you have to say about that, Ben? <laughs> You've been working on against militarism, you and Jerry, for a long, long time, haven't you? Yeah, uh, we have. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, you take a look at all the problems that are facing our country. Uh, you know, education issues, housing issues, health, health issues environmental issues. Inequality. Inequality. Right, right poverty. And uh, you realize that the, it's the money that's in the Pentagon budget that could go to solving all those problems. I mean, it's, it's really hard to believe that you could actually solve all those problems for that amount of money, but it's true. I mean, you know, a billion dollars ain't much when it's in the Pentagon budget. I mean, it's one seven hundredth of what they have to spend. I mean, you don't get much for a billion dollars uh, from a defense contractor, but for a billion dollars, you could eliminate the continuing crisis of lead poisoning in this country for little kids. I mean, little kids are still living in housing with chipping lead paint on the walls. And we know it. And we're not doing anything about it because we say we don't have the money. I mean, what? We're talking about national security? Little kids getting lead poisoning is not national security. I mean, that's national insecurity. and. For one little bit of what's being spent on the Pentagon, we could make it so that those kids are not impaired for life. It's, we are the United States. We are far and away the strongest military force in the world, and we can't even occupy a little country like Iraq. You think Russia or China wants to come and occupy us? That's absurd. I don't know. I don't understand it. It's crazy. I mean, the only reason why this military budget is that high is because the Pentagon has sprinkled defense contractor jobs in every congressional district deliberately so that if we want to cut one of these absurd weapon systems that uh, don't work, <laughs> that uh, are so technologically muscle-bound that, uh, you know, they can't be repaired. You know, for every hour of flying the thing, what, how many hours do they have to spend fixing it? A lot. <laughs> you know, I mean, way more than an hour. I mean, it's, you know, one of my friends who, uh, you know, has worked in the Pentagon and has followed all this stuff, and was a Pentagon whistleblower, you know, on cover of Time magazine, the whole deal. You know, he's been working on trying to get the Pentagon to act rationally, you know, for his entire life. And he said, I finally figured it out. If you understand that the purpose of the Pentagon is to keep the money faucet open, 
is to maximize the amount of money that pours into the Pentagon, everything they're doing makes sense. You know, so we're told, you know, by the guys who stand up there, you know, these admirals with all the buttons on their chest when they testify before Congress that, oh my God, the military is hollowed out, that, oh, if we don't spend more billions on the military, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to, we won't be able to defend ourselves. It's not true. It's a lie. I mean, just look at the reality. Phyllis said it. We could cut $600 billion off the Pentagon and still spend more than Russia, China, North Korea, and a few others combined. Was not, it? Not, not China. China. Okay, what? But the others. We could cut, Russia, we, Iran, we, and Saudi Arabia. We could cut $400 billion Absolutely. off and still spend Absolutely. more than all of those guys. Absolutely. Passion, that's good. I like your passion. And then, Crystal, you are the only one of us, I think, that has had experience on not one but two battlefields because not only Kuwait but I believe because I visited a lot of them in this country indigenous reservations are battlefields too so what is your view of this issue of war military and climate yeah well my background is from an environmental justice um, you know I was basically born into this like I didn't have the luxury of choosing what my fight was going to be and choosing what my battle and what movement I was going to work for or how I was going to organize, like, I was born into this, right? From birth, um, you know, I had two parents that were amazing organizers and helped organize against the Otter Creek coal mine in our community, which is the Northern Cheyenne community in southeastern Montana. Um, I think we've been defending that for about four generations now, and we've prevented development, mm -hmm. although development is around us, you know, 365 degrees. It's everywhere around us, um, and we've been able to prevent it through organizing. And so I grew up watching them and observing them and, and seeing what they were doing. Um, and, you know, and I, I ended up enlisting in the military for reasons as a young person. I just needed guidance, and I needed some kind of structure, and then they get you. They really know how to push the propaganda of serve your country. And in my mind, I grew up hearing serve your people. And so it, it caught me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also come from a long legacy of warriors, right? Like, I mean, the Plains tribes, the Oglala, the Sioux, the Arapaho, I mean, we were the three tribes that banded together and defeated Custer during Battle of Little Bighorn. Um, and so I come from that. Like, I descend from people that were on those battlefields. And so in my mind, you know, I... I made that connection and thought that was the route to go to serve my people um, by serving the country. And then as I got into that, I started really getting to the place of, of really thinking about what am I doing as a Native person who knows that the U.S. military almost completely eradicated my people. All of the massacres, um, Sand Creek was mentioned, um, Fort Robinson, um, Wounded Knee Massacre, the Dakota 38, all of these are coming up here in the next couple months. Um, and those were strategic points when the U.S. military knew that our tribes were at the most vulnerable because it's winter months, and they would attack us strategically during those specific months, um, knowing that. And so growing up hearing that, hearing these stories, and then enlisting in the military, when I got out and I dove more into the environmental justice and organizing, I didn't even say that I was a veteran. I just I kept that to myself um, because it was something I couldn't reconcile. And it, it was something that was really difficult for me to own. 
um, until I started organizing more and like you know obviously deepening my analysis and and getting some really amazing mentors within the movement as well but what ended up happening is I started to make this shift between um, being a soldier who you know upholds an empire and is a tool of an empire um, and, and does what you're ordered to do without question and I had to make that shift of healing over to being a warrior and a warrior will do what is necessary for the benefit of their people and the future generations in our relationship to the land. Um, and so once I made those connections and then my transition from environmental justice work was very smooth over to militarism and anti-war work, um, or anti-militarism, anti-war work. And so for me, they're not separate things. Mm -hmm. um, people talk a lot about intersections, but I don't, I use the word obviously because I'm in these organizing spaces, but in my, the way I view things is like, these are not intersections, these are the same exact things. Mm. And it is all rooted back to the referencing of like manifest destiny, but even farther like the doctrine of discovery of like what even allowed for settlers and colonizers to come on this land and to claim it as their own because there was no Christians here. Um, and so it's like even going to the roots of things is very important for me. Um, and I appreciate actually the bringing up Sand Creek because I feel like I'm always the only one when I'm talking about militarism that brings up indigenous peoples and native peoples. Because if you look at it, the US military was formed in response to indigenous resistance. Mm -hmm. From the strategic locations of all of the military installations we see on this land to the names of equipment. I mean, literally helicopters, Apache, Blackhawk, they're all named after sure. us. Missions are named after us. The mission to go in after um, Bin Laden was named after Geronimo. And it was the 7th Cavalry that went in to complete that mission. And it was the 7th Cavalry that attacked us at the Battle of Little Bighorn with Custer. Um, and so it's like these, the way that it's going, people say like, oh, well, you're being honored. It's not honoring, it's erasing. And it's changing the narrative. And it's changing history is changing our voices and our stories and replacing them with this militarized, propaganda-based um, story that upholds this idea that we're talking about, right, of like this veteran mystique, of like the military is the be-all, end-all. And I mean, we see it in the entertainment industry. You see it every movie that we go to. It's being filled on um, video games. Toys, the little toy soldiers that are given out. Like the idea of militarism is being reinforced to us in every possible way you can look. And the military industrial complex complex is such a massive um, thing that it feels almost impossible to organize around. Um, but you know, as, as mentioned, like Fire Drill Fridays, um, Standing Rock, all of these movements, right now on Mauna Kea, you know, Hawaii, the so-called state of Hawaii, which is actually the Hawaii-occupied Hawaiian kingdom, um, you know, I have brothers that are there right now that, are, that have been there for over 100 days straight now, um, protecting and defending their sacred site from being further desecrated. Well, there was a teach-in. So thanks, Tom, for doing the interview and for getting the clip. Of course, what it does is just emphasize the challenges we face. Despite the pandemic and the increasing number of cases of COVID-19 and the mounting death toll, there are other issues always lurking. And you know it. They are all connected. They are all related. And we said last week, we need to shift in a direction and response. We are all in this together. And if ever the deity of your understanding is 
giving you and me and all of us a plea to start living together. It is now. Or maybe it is the Monday after Easter when the virus continues to spike and more cities, counties, and states lock down. This is no time for profiteering on the sale of masks to protect our nurses and grocery store checkout clerks. This is no time for profiteering or trying to cut a better deal on the production of life-saving ventilators. My dad would always say, this too will pass. And if it will, and it will, it will, but if we're not changed as a society, and I mean Americans, self-centered, privileged Americans, then we are at the spiritual death referred to in the teaching. It will have arrived. But we do have time. Only time. So have a good week. Be safe and healthy. Here's Enya for a second week in a row.